And now, if you have children between the ages of four and six, you may send them to children's worship training, where they will have an experience and training in what it is like to worship corporately, to sing together, to pray together, to listen to God's Word together. They're also welcome to remain here with you as we turn together to the book of Ephesians. Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus is about two-thirds of the way through your New Testament. And we are this morning in the latter half of chapter 3. We will be looking at verses 14 through 21 of Ephesians chapter 3. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. The word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. Ephesians chapter 3, beginning at verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints What is the breadth and length and height and depth? And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church, and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Let's pray together. O Lord, our God, Lord, we ask this morning that you would speak to us through your word, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, your word would take deep root in our lives, that we would see the Lord Jesus Christ before us, and that we would be transformed more and more into the image of Christ. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. What is it that you pray for? What is it that you are concerned about or anxious for? What is it that occupies the focus of your life? What is most important to you? For you see, for followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, perhaps the quickest way to determine what is most important to them is to listen to their prayers, to see what they bring to the Lord in their petitions. And this morning, Paul is going to help us 
to sharpen our thoughts and intentions around prayer. And it will also allow him to point out to us what should be most important to us. Because if we are honest with ourselves, we often pray for external things. Health, relationships, finances, employment. And there is a good reason to bring those petitions to the Lord. But Paul wants us to remember what is foundational to the Christian life. And so this morning we will see three things with respect to Paul's prayer. First, he will tell us the foundation of his prayer. Why it is that he is praying and why he is in the frame that he is in. Second, we will go through the content of his prayer. The actual petitions that Paul brings to the Lord. And then third, we will see the conclusion of his prayer. How Paul concludes with a great doxology of praise to the Lord our God. A foundation of prayer, content of prayer, and conclusion of prayer. Let's begin then by looking at Paul's foundation. Verse 14 begins, For this reason I... Now, This should sound familiar to those of you who have been with us going through the book of Ephesians. If you look up to Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 1, you will see that that verse begins the exact same way as verse 14. You see, Paul actually started this prayer in verse 1, and then by the time he got to verse 2, He wanted to explain about the glorious mystery of the church and the ministry that had been given to him and that that was a part of the reason that he was praying for the Ephesian church. Paul got a little bit sidetracked on a trail or two. But now he's coming back and so he is now telling us his prayer for the Ephesians. So actually, as we read these first few words, for this reason we have to go further back to chapter 2. Because the reason in verse 14 is the same reason in verse 1. And the reason that Paul is praying is that he wants us to remember what God has done in his work of creating the church. You see, the first thing for us to remember is God's glorious work in Jesus Christ bringing Peace with God. The work of the Lord Jesus Christ begins with individuals. As Jesus cuts sinners to the quick, reminds us that we have fallen short of the glory of God and that we need saving because we are not sufficient in ourselves to stand before a holy and perfect God. And so it is the work of Jesus Christ to make atonement upon the cross, to die a death that we deserved so that we might be right with God, so that sinners might find forgiveness and grace. That is the beginning of God's glorious work that Paul wants us to remember. But then, God goes about bringing one people in Christ. In chapter 2, Paul reminds us that God brought those who were far off near to himself that he broke down the wall of hostility between various races, and that he made those who were strangers citizens and family. 
God is doing a work of building up the church. You see, God is growing us individually as followers of Jesus. But He is also growing us together. The church is vital to God's plan. It is His people. It is His family. And so God is doing this glorious work right now in our midst, just as He was in the days of the church at Ephesus. He is building the church here in Katy, throughout Texas, throughout all of America and all of the world. He is gathering together His people into one body, the body of Christ. This is something that is exceedingly marvelous in the eyes of Paul. You get a glimpse of this in verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, Paul says. Now at first glance, that doesn't seem too unusual to us. If you were to ask a random person, perhaps not even someone who frequented church, What physical posture should you have in prayer? They would say you should kneel. Kneeling is what you do for praying. And so as we look at this, we think, well, Paul is going to kneel just like I would at a prayer meeting. Or just like I might teach my children to kneel by the bedside to pray before they go to sleep. But the truth is that in Paul's day, the normal posture for prayer was not kneeling. It was standing. The Old Testament saints prayed by standing, looking up to heaven with arms outraised. Now, it is not that they never knelt, but what's important for us to see here is they only knelt in certain circumstances, in circumstances in which there were extraordinary events occurring, or where they were seized by a great passion of emotion for prayer. So, for example... Solomon, at the dedication of the temple, went to his knees and prayed. Ezra, as he was confessing Israel's sin and seeking the Lord's forgiveness for the replanting of the remnant of Israel in the promised land, went to his knees and prayed. And perhaps what is most well known, our Lord Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he was overcome with the task that was before him, went to his knees and prayed to his Father. So what this tells us is that Paul is obviously affected by what he is thinking about. That he is going to the Lord in prayer with a mindset of great emotion and hope, looking at the glorious work of God. So the question then comes for us. How often do you think about the work of God in your life? Are you aware of the blessings that you have each and every day that come from the hand of the Father? Do you think about the blessing that the church is to you? That God has established by gathering together His people. You see, it is far too easy to leave God out of the equation of our prayers. Now, I don't mean that we don't pray to Him. I mean that we pray to Him and forget what He has done to bring us to the point of prayer. How He has spared us, redeemed us, and blessed us. 
Paul wants us to remember this first and foremost, that God's glorious work are at the foundation of prayer. But it is more than just thinking about what has been done. Paul wants us also to think about who is doing it. And so he wants us to remember God's glorious self. He says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory He may grant. You see, Paul has come to know the character of God. He knows that God is gracious and merciful. He knows that God is giving and forgiving. He knows that God is wise and powerful. And so Paul turns to the Lord his God and understands that he is not only working wondrous things, but that God himself is wondrous. You see, what makes Paul so confident in his prayer is that he knows God has already determined to do these things for the church in Ephesus. This brings Paul a sense of confidence, but also a sense of awe at the one who has promised to keep his word. Now this is a good help to you and to me for our own prayer life. Oftentimes we struggle with prayer. We begin with with grand hopes and intentions. And as we begin praying, our minds wander. We pray for our neighbor, and then all of a sudden, as we're praying for them, our mind wanders to the barbecue we had at our neighbor's house. And the way that their house is furnished. And what their children look like. And we need to be brought back to center with our prayer. One of the greatest ways to do that is what Paul does, which is to pray God's promises back to him. The promises that come to us in the scriptures, to pray them back to the Lord. To pray the promise that the Lord has given to us, that he will never leave us nor forsake us. To pray that he would be our rock and our stay. To pray that he would be our comfort to pray that He would keep us in His hand. All of the promises that come to us in God's Word that are sure are are matter for us to bring to Him in prayer. This is a wonderful way to shape our prayer life. Paul also tells us something about who God is by the name that He names Him. He says, I bow my knees before the Father. Now, it's interesting that this is perhaps the simplest name for God. There are so many names that we could use for God with multiple adjectives and superlatives on top of each other. This is very short and simple. Father. But at the same time, this name describes the most profound relationship that we have with God. That He is our Father. That all of our blessings come to us because of that relationship. Paul has told us in chapter 1 verse 3 that God is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ 
with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. And now once again here, there is an echo of this in our ears. We can call God Father because He is the Father of Jesus Christ. And as we trust in the Lord Jesus and are united to Him in God's glorious work, then the Father becomes our Father as well. All of our relationships begin with God the Father. And Paul does this with a play on words. He says, The Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. We might also translate this word family from whom all fatherhood is named. You see, all the relationships that we have and the family that we hold dear are derived from God the Father. The family is central to men and women, not because it is ancient, not because it provides for clear law, not because it is something that is traditional and that we are used to. The family is central to all of humanity because it reflects the relationship of the creator to the creation. Each family bears witness to the fatherhood of God in their own family structure. And this is a real challenge to the men among us. For you see, in your own family, you are a father. And as a father, you reflect the nature of God. Your fatherhood comes from the authority of God's fatherhood. Now, Hold on just a moment there. Because some of us will leap immediately and say, well, if I'm the father, I've got dad's authority. My wife, bring me my slippers and food. Children, serve me. You know, I have God's authority as a father. Now, hold on just a second. We just talked about the character of God. What is God's fatherhood like? God is merciful and gracious. He's wise and powerful. He's forgiving and giving. And you see, that is what our fatherhood must reflect. We bear the symbol of our Heavenly Father. Fatherhood is critical because it is derived from the character of God. This is the foundation of Paul's prayer. It is what allows him to bring petition to the Lord that he knows God's glorious work and his glorious self. Paul then begins the content of his prayer. And he prays in the main for three things. For strength, for love, and for fullness. Let's take them in turn. His first petition is that The Father may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now notice what Paul's first prayer is here. It is for the inner person. It is that Christ would dwell in our hearts by His Holy Spirit. Now again, we often don't begin there. We often begin our prayers with what seems more obvious to us and that is external. Issues of health and sickness. Issues of external relationships. 
But Paul begins right at the heart, literally. He prays for the inner being of all those who are in the church in Ephesus. Now, at first glance, this might seem confusing. Because Paul is praying for the church that they would know Jesus dwelling within them by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we might ask ourselves, isn't that true of every believer in Christ? Aren't they united with Christ and have Jesus dwelling within them? Does Paul mean something different here? Is there some sort of second work that he is pointing us toward so that we could somehow get more of Jesus than we had before? I don't think so. You see, this is the same Paul that says over and over again in this book of Ephesians that we are found in Christ. That that is the definition of a Christian. The definition of a follower of Jesus is someone who is in Christ. So what does Paul mean here? I think he is letting us know that there are degrees of Christ dwelling within us. And so what he is praying here is that we would be strengthened with Christ within us. It's a concept like reinforcement. Have you ever had that opportunity when you are around the house, perhaps in the garage, and there are some beams that seem shaky, and they're holding up, but you don't really trust them to stand under them? And so you get something and you reinforce it, you, you brace it, you make it more solid. That's what Paul is saying to us here. He wants us to be strengthened, to have our relationship with Christ be even stronger. Because Paul knows what is true and sometimes we're afraid to admit. And that is that life is hard. That circumstances can be difficult. That circumstances can even be such that doubts can arise in our hearts about the Lord. And then that begins to snowball because we then begin to wonder if we're worthy of God and His grace, if we have these doubts, if we're not 100% rock solid all the time. You see, Paul understands that that is the normal Christian experience. So if you have had times of difficulty and struggle, Paul is praying for you. He's not saying you're a weak Christian. He's not saying God will give up on you. He is praying with all his might that Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit would strengthen you with all might. You see, Paul wants us to be ready to meet the challenges of life. And he knows we can only do that by God's grace. And so he calls on God to do a mighty work. He says... That God would strengthen us with power. Now, we've already seen several times that when Paul gets excited, his language becomes emotional, almost over the top. Strengthened with power. He loads one word on top of another. But there is something special about this word, strengthened. It's a highly unusual word. It's a word that expresses great might. It's called kratios. And the reason I'm saying this to you is to give you a visual picture. You see, there used to be an Olympic event 
back in the original Olympics in Greece, before swimming, before gymnastics, before the thing where they waved the ribbon, there was an event called the Pan-Kration, Kratos. And what it meant was all strength. And the rule of the Pan-Kration was that there were no rules. Everything went. So it wasn't just the strongest boxer or the strongest kicker or one with the strongest endurance. It was the one who was strongest all around, who could win by boxing and eye gouging and biting and kicking. And the winner of the Pankration was hailed as the greatest athlete in all of Greece. Because you can imagine, you had to be pretty strong to win the all-strength championship. That's the kind of strength Paul wants you to have. Not just a little bit of help. Not can I make it through the day. To be a person of might and power spiritually. Paul vividly wants us to understand this. And he wants us to understand that the way to have this kind of power is not in our action. It's not like the Olympic athletes that train over and over, day by day by day, hour by hour in the gym. Now look at how that strength comes to us. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. You see, it is in trusting what Jesus has done that we grow stronger. Our faith is strengthened Not by what we do, but by knowing and believing in what Jesus has done. And this word here for dwell is a very specific kind of word. There are two ways that Paul could have said Christ would dwell in you. One way describes the way a visitor comes and stays at an inn or someone's home. Another way describes a permanent settlement or dwelling. This is the latter. Paul is praying that Jesus would settle permanently in your life and take control of your life and your heart. This is what it means to be strengthened. The second thing that Paul prays for is for love. That you, being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Now once again here we notice Paul's excitement. Paul's statement here makes the school teachers in us a bit nervous. He's using a no-no. It's called a mixed metaphor. He says, I want you to be rooted... And then he says, and to be grounded or founded. And the school teacher in us wants to say, Paul, wait a minute. First you're talking about growing things and farming, and then all of a sudden we're in this city, and you're building a building. Where are you going? And what Paul is doing here is he is so excited about what it means to be grounded in Christ's love that he describes both of these metaphors. He says, how can we grow only in Christ? It is only by love. Our lives are to be rooted in love, and love is to be the foundation 
of our lives. You see, love is the starting point for us. It is where the roots take hold. Love is what nourishes us and our life. Just like the roots nourish the plant. But Paul also knows that we have to face these challenges of life. And how do we face the challenges? Now this is interesting. Because our tendency as people, when we see something coming that is hard or difficult, is to brace for it. Right? To try to be unfeeling. To try to be hard and immovable like a rock. That's how we think we will get through hard circumstances. But Paul says it's just the opposite. The way that we are grounded, the way that we get through the difficult trials of life is through love. It's through openness. It's through our heart reaching out to the Lord. And we see this even in the language that Paul uses. This word here for grounded is also used in Matthew chapter 7. Now I will save you turning your Bibles to Matthew 7. But to remind you of the story of the man who built the house on sand and the man who built the house, what? On the solid rock. Well, the word for the solid rock is the same word as being grounded here. You see, what Paul is telling us is, it is love that will make us secure. It is love that will lay a foundation that we can build our spiritual lives upon. Peter puts it this way in his first letter. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, establish you. Establish is the same word as grounded. But this love that we are to be aware of and rooted and grounded is in, it's this love that God grows in us that allows us to understand the true love of Christ. And you see, what Paul wants us to do is to know, to comprehend with all the saints What is the breadth and length and height and depth of Christ's love? Now, it's it's interesting that what allows us to understand this love of Christ is not our knowledge, it's not wisdom, it's our love. That as God grows love in us, that we can understand the true wondrous love that Jesus has for us. Because you see, you know well, it is one thing to see love. It is another thing to experience it. And when we experience love, we know it to its depths. And that's what Paul wants us to know. And so he describes what are called often the four magnitudes the breadth, the length, the the height, and the depth. And this is Christ's love for us. Christ's love is wide enough to embrace all the nations, long enough to last forever, high enough to reach us up to heaven, and deep enough to reach 
the worst of sinners. This is the great love of Jesus. Now, Paul has a very interesting turn of phrase that's confusing to us. He says, he wants us to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Now, as we read that, do you do a double take also? How do I know something that's beyond all knowing? How do I know something that's incomprehensible? What are you asking me to do, Paul? And I think this again gets us back to the point that Paul wants to move us past merely understanding and mental assent. What he wants us to do is to experience the love of Christ. The word earlier, comprehend, means to lay hold of, to make my own, to experience Paul wants us to experience the love of Jesus Christ. Now there is something else that's interesting here that we don't expect. He wants us to comprehend with all the saints the love that is in Christ. You see, I think our first inclination would be to say that we would understand Jesus' love for us with just me and Jesus. Maybe we go off somewhere on a retreat or up to a mountaintop And we are alone with Jesus. And that's how we can really get to know the love of Christ. But you see, Paul says it's the exact opposite. The only way we can truly understand the love of Christ is with all the saints. And if we think about that, that makes sense. Because this is what God has intended. He intended us to share the love of Christ with each other. He's intended us to teach each other and tell each other about the love of Christ. And so you see, the church, God's people, is essential for each of us to understand, to comprehend, and lay hold of the great love of Jesus. The third request that Paul makes is that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now this also seems like a very bold request. Because how could we, as finite creatures, have the fullness of God filling us? Is Paul somehow saying that we're going to be made infinite at some point? No, I don't think so. The Bible never teaches that. But Paul, at another place in Colossians, describes the fullness of God as being found in Christ. And so I think what Paul is saying here is that he wants us to experience Christ, to have Christ dwelling within us, to know Jesus, to be more like Jesus, and in doing that, we contain the fullness of God. You see... If I go out to the ocean and I fill a pitcher with ocean water, I don't have the whole ocean in my pitcher, but I have everything that is oceany about the ocean in my pitcher. And you see, that is how we are with Jesus Christ. As we experience the love of Christ and Christ dwells in us and we become more and more like Jesus... We are filled with the fullness of God. Paul then 
goes on in verses 20 and 21 to conclude his prayer with a great doxology. If you were looking for a verse or two this week or month to memorize, start with Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. It's glorious in the way that Paul praises God. And he concludes his prayer first by telling us that God is able. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. Now, Paul cannot help, as he concludes, but think about the one who is giving. He's not focused primarily on the petition. He's not focused primarily on the recipient. He's focused primarily on the one to whom he is praying, the giver. Because you see, prayer is about communicating with and communing with God. Not just about getting things. And so Paul's mind goes immediately back to God. And the first reminder is that God can do what Paul is praying for. You see, Paul has laid out some tall requests. That we would know the incomprehensible love of Christ that we would be strengthened by the indwelling Christ and Holy Spirit, that we would be filled with the fullness of God, that's a tall order. But you see, Paul immediately tells you, God can do this. He is able. As a matter of fact, He is able to do more than you could even ask for, more than you could even think to ask for. That's how glorious and powerful your God is. If that doesn't give you confidence and comfort, I don't know what will. Paul is literally saying you can't think of a prayer that God is not able to fulfill. That's how mighty and powerful God is. And he can do it beyond all measure, Paul says. Now, sometimes we don't get things beyond all measure. Sometimes we're around the dinner table, and our favorite meal is being served. And it may happen in your family, as often happens in ours, dad or mom will dish out the meal. One scoop, two scoop. I could take another. All right, one more. Okay. Really? I can't have four? Really? I really like this. I could take six. Seriously. No, you got what you got on your plate. Make sure you eat it, and everybody has to have some. Right? That's how it goes. That's not how God gives. You don't ever have to think that God needs to give you more. Because everything that God gives is beyond any measure. It's beyond your ability to receive. God is not a stingy giver. You see, that is a lie from the pit of hell. That is a lie that first came into the garden to Adam and Eve from Satan. That God was holding things back from them. But that is not who God is, Paul says. God is gracious and good and a giver. And God, finally, is already at work. You see, Paul wants us to be confident, not just in God's ability to bring these things about, but he wants you to know God's already doing it. Do you see this? He is able to do far more abundantly according to the power at work within us. God will accomplish this prayer 
according to His power. Now that is encouraging, isn't it? That God's power will accomplish it. But hold on a minute. It's the power that's already at work within you. You don't need to wait for it to happen. You don't need to hope that God will follow through. What Paul says is that God is already at work in your life. What an encouragement. We don't have to think that we are left behind, that somehow we are left out. No, God is at work with His incredible power in our lives each and every day. And God is also at work in the church You remember that we said that the church is critical for understanding the love of Jesus. Well, that's because God has established the church as a place for His glory. His glory would be in the church and in Christ Jesus. The church is the place where Jesus is seen and where He will be seen. This is God at work in your life and in the lives of others around you that the glory of Jesus would be seen. The good news of the gospel is that God's work never ends until it is completed and finished. God will never give up on you. He is at work with His mighty power to make you more and more like Jesus, to bring you closer and closer in union with Christ, that you might know the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, that you might experience the love that is beyond understanding. This is the God of the Bible. This is the God of the universe. Will you serve this God? Will you trust Him? Will you know that He is enough and that all of His promises are yea and amen in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for the reminder that you are at work in our lives and that you are strengthening us with all your might through the work of your Spirit and the indwelling Christ. Lord, help us to follow after you, to do your will, and to spread the love of Jesus Christ abroad. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen.